I get to deal with the fun topic of sin. And so, when you think about uh, our theme verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and to be strong. To be watchful, you have to watch out for sin. You have to be mindful of sin. We're going to be talking this evening about how sin is deceitful. And so, kind of with, you can look at different men that I've, you know, seen over the past uh, few years, and you look at what the trajectory of their life, and you talk to them about it, and they can't see it. It's almost as if, no, no, that, that's, that's not my problem. There's, there's nothing going on here. It, it's okay. And, and you, you, you try to tell them, and you try to talk to them, but they, they just can't see. And you think, well, shoot, how many areas in my own life have I been deceived by sin? And how many areas do I need to be watchful do I need to be mindful of sin that I don't be taken in by the deceitfulness of sin? If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the very first sin as kind of a taste of the DNA of how sin works and temptation and the deceitfulness of sin. I'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. For God knows on that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, we need your spirit to illuminate to us areas where we have been deceived, we have been taken captive um, by lies and and believing things, Lord, that are contrary to your words. We pray, Lord, as we talk and discuss these things, we can meditate on your word, that your spirit can awaken dark areas of our life that maybe we've shut in a corner and locked the key and hope nobody noticed. And Lord, be with me as I uh, present your word, that I can exalt Christ and make much of what he has done. Amen. So when you look at sin, the devil, the first thing he does is he introduces a little bit of doubt. And it's just a fascinating question. He says, has God really said? Just a little bit of doubt. A little bit of doubt can go a long way. The devil can have lots of fun with doubt. If you can't give somebody a straight-out lie, maybe just give them a little bit of uncertainty. Maybe that would do the job. Later, the devil also kind of repeats this when he's talking to Jesus, asking him, if you really are the Son of God. So, being crafty as he is, he puts a little bit of doubt and says, has God really said? And so, doubt is not as strong as a a lie, but its effect can still be of the full force. If you doubt maybe God's word is true. If you doubt that scripture means what it says, may as well be just the same effect as if you believed a lie. 
So how convenient do you think the, the devil is? He says he gladly wants you to believe God's word, the very thing that would be the remedy in this situation. So he, he, he contradicts God's word, the very thing Eve ought to have grabbed hold of in that moment and stood firm. But instead, she, she consented and moved on. The step two of the devil's strategy is just give a straight out lie. Verse three, he says, you certainly will not die. He goes on to say, you will become like God. So it's no longer just a doubt. It's a straight contradiction going directly across what God had said. So now we, in this phrase, we have a lie and a half truth. You're not going to die. This is good for food, as Eve later realizes. And not only that, it'll make you wise. The half truth. It's not the kind of wisdom that we would all hope for. So right there, it's as if he has a hook and he's putting the bait on it, covering up the danger with something nice. And it's like you're telling a mouse, no, no, that's not a mouse trap. That's just where I keep my cheese. You're welcome to have some if you like. <laughs> and isn't the, the devil being crafty, just covering it up? It, this isn't anything to be dangerous about. Nothing to be worried about. And then step three is the belief and the action on it. Let's call this the deceitful exchange. Well, the woman saw the tree was good for food, in verse 6, a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. So she sees the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, able to make one wise. So she saw something that was evil as good. It exchanged. It was an evil thing. It was good. And a good thing that she saw all around her became evil. It, I, don't, I don't want those things. But again, when God created everything, what did he say? He saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. She believed what she was doing was good. This is a, a good thing for me. And can't you see yourself? If you thought you were going to eat something that was going to make you wise, wasn't going to kill you, you thought, okay, th this is a good idea. And so it's, lies can be like a powerful way to get around all sorts of, of God's pesky laws that get in our way of our sin. It's kind of like, you know, if you had a magic cartoon hole, you could put it up and walk through any wall you want to. If you have the right lie, you can get to any sin. Well, it'll be okay. It's, it's not a big deal. And so, did, did she actually gain wisdom? Yes, it, it made her wise. But as my kid, I often tell my kids when they, what'd you say? What's happening? What's going on? What, tell me more. Tell me more. It says, you don't want to know. The older you get, you realize there's some things you just don't want to know. And that's, I think, the kind of wisdom that she fell into. And so, as it says in Amos 2.4, their lies had led them astray. They believed lies and they were taken in. And so, if we were to kind of distill maybe where we're going to focus tonight, sin is deceitful and is often upstream of many vices. As the first sin has its origin in deception, so too, when we sin, deception lies close at hand. Lies are like an ingredient in the recipe of sin. And this is a theme that goes throughout Scripture. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And of course, this 
often quoted verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So as we look at sin, we're going to look at several different ways how sin deceives us. And so the first one is we're going to look at how sin deceives us into thinking we're better than we actually are. And so you look at Adam and Eve, they thought they knew better than God. God says, don't do this. They got a little inside information from the devil, and they thought, well, this is now better, right? And we have the same problem. And you look at the book of Proverbs, and it's, you could pick not one verse, but many. Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And so that's kind of our disposition. We're always thinking ourselves are right. And even if you go to secular psychology, there was a guy I was listening to. I just typed in deceitfulness of sin, and this guy came up, and he had a bunch of interesting statistics that they had done research on. And one is if you're looking at a, a bunch of pictures, you know, they somehow have a computer where it makes you look more attractive or less attractive. You would buy, you know, as fast as you can, click the picture that looks like you. Always pick the person that was about 15 to 20% more attractive. And then he went on to say, all of the professors they interviewed, how smart are you amongst all of your peers? They said, well, I, I'm, I think I'm kind of, you know, in the, in definitely in the better half. It was like, you know, most of the people that did that. And I don't know if you've never heard of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's as soon as you learn something, you think you're very smart, very quick. It's only after you get humbled a bunch and realize, no, I'm not very smart. And then you actually begin to slowly learn. So it's, just, it's our bent to think that we're better than we are not only in our rationality, our thinking, but also morally. There was a, a book we read in our men's group, and uh, I just love this quote. Um, it's by Richard Steele. He's a Puritan. He says, He endeavors to hide himself from God, more from men, but most from himself. He was reading Proverbs 30, or excuse me, Psalms 36.2, where he says, He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. So we don't like to entertain evil thoughts of ourselves. Though they be true, we don't like to entertain the possibility that we could be much worse sinners than we actually are. So do you see the great danger when you can exalt yourself above what you actually are? If you think that you're better than you are, I don't need to worry about this. I got it. This isn't a problem for me. I see other people, they have problems, but not me. We're talking in our group. It's you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of the top of the class. That guy over there, he's, you know, he's probably got the F. It's we like to condemn others quickly, but like to exalt ourselves, you know, even faster. We, we don't like to, you know, look at if there's a conflict, a difficulty, or an accident. We, we don't start with ourselves immediately, do we? We say, well, the problem's got to be out there. The problem's got to be somebody else. It couldn't possibly be my fault. So it becomes dangerous when you exalt the opinion of yourself to think that you're better than you are because you start to close the door of criticism, of helpful criticism, of godly rebuke. Hey, brother, did you know you have a problem in this area? No, 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 you, you, got, you must be somebody else. It's not me. Hey, did, did you see that you really struggle? Would you, who do you think you are to come into my life and talk to me like that? How dare you? And how dangerous of that, if you're actually caught in a sin, someone's trying to lift you out and you close the door on your face, that's quite a frightening position to be in, isn't it? If you can't receive sin, that's like going, going to the doctor. The doctor says, hey, you have a terminal illness. You need to get this taken care of. And you say, oh, no, no, doctor. 
That's not a problem for me. I know I'm going to be just fine. We might laugh and kind of joke about that, but we're talking about your spirit, your soul. Your soul is far more important than your body. One of them is going to last forever. If you have a sickness in your soul and someone's trying to diagnose you, you better pay attention. You better be quiet. You better listen. Even if they're 1% right and 90 90% lie, you want that 1%. Because you want to be like Jesus and you want to hate sin. You don't want to be friends with sin. And if sin started sneaking around and getting comfortable in your life, you need to attack it. I assume you probably don't want a pet rat in your house. How much worse is sin than a pet rat? So, here we go on. and Sorry, my iPad closed. And so, we often point the problem elsewhere. We can say, well, it's not me. It's, I, I, I was kind of tired today. You know, uh, that, that's what it was. Or I'm, I'm cranky. I had a hard day at work. Or I, I didn't eat enough. Or, you know, she makes me so angry. Isn't that a good one? It's not... <laughs> It's not uh, her, you know, my, my problem, it's her. She's the one that made me angry. And what did, what did Adam do, right? God comes down, and he says, Adam, what, what's going on? And he says, you're right, you know, I, I sinned. It's, oh, that, that woman that you gave me, she's the problem. So what, what does Adam's wife do? Okay, that was a good idea. She follows his lead. She does the same thing. It was a snake that you put in the garden. Neither of them own up to their sin, but they want to blame something else, not themselves, ask for forgiveness, but it's to push the problem off. So if sin deceives us into thinking that we're better than we are, we, we need to pay attention. It's you know the, going to the parable Jesus told of someone's got the log in their eye and the little twig. It's like the hypocrisy is very easy there. You could have, and what Jesus is saying is you could have a huge log in your eye and you don't even notice, and what you do notice is somebody else. That's exactly kind of the, how the deceitfulness of sin can work. And so, maybe it's a silly illustration, but it's kind of like we're a robot. We have a metal detector, and we're complaining. This thing is always going off. It must be broken. Well, maybe that's because you're metal, right? Or it's like uh, Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. We need to go to God humbly and say, Search me and know me. God knows us far better than we can know ourselves. And we want God, we want that light to come and shine in us. We don't want the dark spots of sin. We don't want those there. We want to get rid of them and hide them. So we have to be mindful of the deceitfulness of sin that we think we're, we're better than we are. And next, sin deceptively relabels our vices as virtue. So Adam and Eve, they saw the tree was good for food and able to make one wise, but it, but it was death. There's no getting around it. it. It was death. They thought it was something good. And so Malachi 2.17 has this, this is a great scripture. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. Maybe a good example of this is the Korban rule. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees you know, in Matthew 15. And so the commandment is to honor your father and mother. And they say, okay, well, what can we do to get around it? I don't know how that conversation went. I said, well, what if instead of giving my money and taking care of my parents, I just give it to God? There we go. Now I'm doing something virtuous. So no longer you, you know, you've ripped out one of God's commandments and you've given it a healthy label, but you're actually doing something sinful. And you patted yourself on the back. And you're so creative, everybody else, that was a pretty good idea. We're going to do that too. And then it was a pervasive thing that was happening. 
So we have to be mindful of trying to look at the sinful things that we do and trying to package them with, a, with better labels. Uh, I found this is a good quote by Jonathan Edwards. I, I just would read some of it, but it's really good. So men do not love to condemn themselves. They are prejudiced in their own favor and in favor of whatever is found in themselves. Hence, they will find out good names by which to call their evil dispositions and practices. They will make them more virtuous, or at least they will make them innocent. Their covetous they will call prudence and diligence in business. If they rejoice in another's calamity, they will pretend it is because they will hope it will do them good and will humble them. If they indulge in excessive drinking, it is because their constitutions require it. If they talk against and backbite their neighbor, they call it zeal against sin. It is because they would bear a testimony against such wickedness. They, thus they always find good uh, names for their evil ways. So it's like the devil's temptation. You can always find something good in something evil you do, even if you'd like to say, oh, I'm going to shoot a guy, and now there's more resources for the planet, and there's more room. So, I mean, it, it's easy to do, right? Our, our brain is ready to find a quick remedy for, hey, you want to do this? Here, here's a good justification for it. Right? It's very easy to justify sin. Um, this is another good example. This is Saul. So he's chasing down David um, before where uh, Graham was talking about. And so it says, Saul heard that David had come to uh, Kaliah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Right? For he has shut him in by entering a town, the gates of gates and bars. So God has finally got me, David, my enemy. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Is that really what God wants is for him to kill David? So he has called something evil good, and he's even giving God credit for it. Can you imagine the hypocrisy of doing something sinful and saying, praise the Lord. Isn't, isn't this so good what's happening? And how deceived you'd have to be. Here's a few ideas of repackaged sin. It's not gossip. It's a prayer request. Well, that person deserves it, and they're justifying anger. Or if you've seen on television, it's excessive looting, but they say, well, they have good insurance. It, it'll be okay. Or, well, well, God knows my heart, even if what I did was wrong. Or we can omit key details from a story, which is effectively lying. Or the silly phrase, finders, keepers, stealing. Reproductive freedom, women's health, murder. Or acceptance, love, tolerance, loving the things that God hates like sexual immorality. So we must deal honestly with our motives of what we're doing and why we're doing, not attempt to cover it up. It's, we, sin is deceitful, so we have to think that, okay, there's going to be a ready lie when I want to, to do something that I want to do. And so next, we're talking about sin and how it has deceitful desires. So the deception came to Eve as it was desirable to make one wise. That's not necessarily a wrong thing to want to be wise, but it's to come around in a weird, underhanded sort of way. To, to get something, uh, breaking God's laws, going across the street when you're supposed to take the sidewalk sort of thing. Breaking the rule. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And Ephesians 4.22 says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So another translation says deceitful desires. So it's a desire that lies to you, an evil desire coming to you, appearing as something due, uh, so, sorry, something good. So 
it's a desire to do something evil, but you, you've been tricked into thinking that it's doing good. And this can be anything. So imagine as if sin was coming to you, wanting to trick you with a lie, almost like a personification. It would paint a cute face over a viper. It would relabel poison for juice, lies for truth. God's word says, no, don't do it. But again, it comes to you, wooing softly, gently, whatever it is you want to hear. Don't believe it. You must fight against it. No, no, it says. It'll be all right. There, there's no danger. If sin comes to you, a lust, a deceitful desire, you pull out the Bible, the Word of God, and you cut its head off. You don't try to parlay it, have a nice, fruitful, fun conversation with it. You need to kill it. You're not making friends with sin. You're not making peace with sin. You're trying to kill sin. So if sin comes in with a creepy, lustful desire, you need to shoot it in the head, not make friends with it. Sin, sin isn't out to, to you know, want to just be buddy-buddy. It'll appear that way if you want a friend. Whatever it is you, you want. And so we're, we're at a men's conference, so I get to put my foot in it, but there's no doubt that some of you in this room have believed the lies of pornography. Whatever lie it might be, that it's, it's no big deal, it's not going to hurt anybody, it's, it's, just, it's innocent fun. What, I, there's whatever lie you want, your sinful flesh will be happy to, to take that. But it comes to you as deceitfully good, but it's destructive. We let it ruin your marriage. We let it ruin you. We let it tarnish your reputation. Maybe it'll cost you your job. Maybe it'll cost you ministry. Is, is that something that, that would be worth it for you? And it's not insane. It doesn't just, you know, the, the quote, it doesn't stay small. It gets bigger and grows. Is that something you really want to grow in your life? Is that something you want to, you know, curate as a, as a gardener? Oh, this is a lovely flower. It's poisonous, and I, one day I'm going to eat it when, it when it is fully grown. You think that man would be insane. So why didn't you just cut the plant out, throw it in the uh, fire pit and a bunch of metal gasoline and light it on fire? We can't make friends with it. Or maybe you believed you're, you're trapped in such a sin like that. Or guilt. But there's no sin that you can be entrapped in that Christ cannot set you free from. There, it's not as if pornography is the one sin in our generation that is just you know unconquerable to the Christian. No, it's... You, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is now working from you. In you. What, what, is, what is a simple lust? So again, stand firm in the faith. Be familiar with the, the scriptures of how to fight sin, lustful sin. And when we sin, remember, it's, we're, we're being deceived. We, we think as though we've found a shortcut. We've, we've got the upper hand. We, we've got the, I know how to, okay, this is, this is how we can do this now. We find something we think is a shortcut, but it's really the long, painful route. It's like, uh, you know, one of, and this is, maybe it's easy to pick on my kids, but uh, my kids will say, you know, screaming, you hate me because you didn't give me candy. It's like, what, what is the lie that they're believing in that moment? They think that, if I love them, I'll give them whatever they want. But that's not how it works. They, they might have a desire for this thing, and it says, you're, you know, your dad loves you, you will give whatever you want. I say, well, no, and then it's, you know, kicking and screaming, and, you know, I, at this point, I think it's hilarious. But <laughs> So, again, sin is deceitful in its desires. And next, sin is deceitful when you don't realize how bad it is. When Adam sinned, do you suppose he could have known all the evil that have come in that one act of disobedience? One little sin, and here is the entire world plunged in ruin and misery. You think he could have realized the consequences or just how bad it is. 
So I borrow this quote from A.W. Pink. He kind of peruses the scripture and pieces together a bunch of fun names for sin. Sin assumes many garbs, but when it appears in its nakedness, it is seen as a black, misshapen monster. How God himself views it may be learned from the various similitudes used by the Holy Spirit to set forth its ugliness and loathsomeness. He has compared with the greatest deformities, the most filthy and repulsive objects to be met with in this world. Sin is likened to the scum of a seething pot, which is a detestable carcass, a dead, rotting body, the noisome stench and poisonous fumes that issue forth from the mouth of an open sepulcher, the lust of the devil, putrefying sores, a menstrual cloth, a canker or gangrene, the dung of a filthy carcass, the vomit of a dog, the wallowing of a sow, and the stinking mire. So sin... I don't know if you realize this, is a really bad idea. <laughs> but I just have to say that again because you still sin, I still sin. We somehow get, get lost that, no, no, sin really isn't that bad. But do you suppose if you really believe sin to be the terrible monster, you, you'd keep doing it? Everything that is painful, miserable, sad, sorrowful in your life is a result of sin, directly or indirectly. Sin brought death in every evil thing that we can complain about, even complaining itself. It is more like playing with a monster when it would have you to believe it's cute and cuddly. It's like a wolf that's dressed up as a sheep. It's like a demon appearing as an angel. It promises heaven but delivers hell. It offers pleasure, indulgence, but when it bears forth, it brings forth pain, sorrow, and grief. It proclaims security and safety but delivers destruction. Sin lies to you. It tries to destroy you in the name of trying to love you. Sin tells you to get angry at those you are supposed to love. Sin lets you tiptoe, evil tiptoe around you when you ought to take a stand. It just shakes hands with the devil. Just one sin is enough to condemn you to hell. Just one sin brought misery and death into the world. One sin of adultery ruins a marriage. One sin can ruin much good, destroy a reputation, church, and entire lives, work, friendship. But the greatest argument for how bad sin is, is that it took Jesus Christ to come into this world to pay for it. There wasn't a thing you or I could do or anything on earth that could pay for your sin. But it took the perfect Son of God to come down, live a perfect life, and to die on a cross. If you want to know how bad sin is, you look at that cross. Because it's no little thing for God to come down and suffer. You look at the wrath of God being poured out on Christ, and that is how you know sin is. It is no little thing. It is a terrible thing, and we ought to hate it, abhor with all of our being. It is not something we ought to think light of. It's so easy to do because it happens so often. We ought to repent. We ought to mourn. We ought to hate our sin. Sin is a terrible monster that we have to fight with all our being. And so, maybe it's an illustration. What would you think about a man who brought a bunch of little dangerous toys for, for kids to play with and that would hurt themselves? So this is maybe a do abrasive of a shift, but on Saturday Night Live, there was this, this guy who was kind of, let's, let's see what to do, and they, they had a bag of glass, and he was going to give it to kids as a Christmas gift. And you say, that, that's just that's creepy. Why, why would you even do that? But that's, that's what sin is. It brings you something that's going to destroy you and hurt you and harm you and ruin you, and it it's comes with this nice, happy package of it's, it's really not that bad. So sin, again, it's, it deceives with how bad it is. And next, sin deceives us in its consequences. So what is the end of sin? 
Adam and Eve, it was, it was death, physical death, spiritual death, and a groaning and cursed world. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6 say, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now listen, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. In Galatians, there's a few of these, but I'll just one more. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So I'm sure you guys have heard this quote, but it's, it's just really good. So I'm going to read it again. So sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And don't we do that? We'd like to do a cost-benefit analysis in our mind. Well, I, I, could, I could do this, and that's really not so bad, so well, maybe that's worth the risk. But even if you do that, you, you've bit the hook. You've taken the line. right? It seems like it's just going to be one little thing, but it's a whole lot more. It's a whole big world of, of misery and pain. So it... The consequences of of sin are are catastrophic. It's you know ruined lives. You, you, it's not hard to look around us in our lives and see people whose lives have been ruined and devastated by sin. They get addicted to something, or they decide to get into something, and it's a, a long way down. Or you look at people and you you try to talk to them about it, and you know family members, whoever it might be, and they they'll look at you like no no nothing's wrong it's it's not me it's that the crazy person i live with or it's that person over there they're so deceived they can't see that where they're at in life is the consequences of their own sin and what about someone who's lost what are the consequences of their sin do you not realize that it is sin that shuts lost people if that's you out out of heaven and it locks you in hell. Even the one sin is like wearing a, a, a lead suit and trying to swim in the ocean. You're going to go straight to the bottom. Sin is so horrid in God's sight that it, it makes you, you justly deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity. And we can just let that thought sink in. Isn't it a terrible thought to think someone suffering in hell for all of eternity? On and on and on. Do you suppose in their minds as they're suffering there, there, there's some level of, of regret, and why well, I, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. The, the rich man in Lazarus is in there, you know, tor- wanting just one drop of water. It's, it's so bad that you, you think you would have thought, well, maybe, maybe I should have done things different. And you can still see, he's still deceived into thinking, well, no, go, go get Lazarus, and, and I, I really don't deserve this, and it's, it's my fault. And how terrible it would be for someone here to be in such a situation where one day that would be you. Believing that, okay, I kind of stepping into my next point, that I, I'm really good enough. Sin can be deceptive in making us think that we're self-righteous, that we're, we're good enough people. Proverbs 14:12 says, "For the way that seems right is the or excuse me, try this again. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. And you talk to many people out on the street and think, oh, I'm, I'm on the path to heaven. Oh, this is great news. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Please, please tell me more about this path to heaven you're on. Well, I'm, I just try to you know, live a, a good life and just you know, try to be better than the next guy. Is that, that's not the path to heaven. That's the broad road to hell. Everybody thinks that. It's not as if we just have to type up high enough stairs and then, okay, we're in heaven. 
The only way to heaven is if you are if you're a new creature, if, if you are born again. It's a radical transformation. You believe in Christ, you turn from your sins. It's not, it's not a, a simple, I just got to elevate my, my works, my deeds, my doings. It's, it's being a new person. So, as we kind of work to a close, what are the cures for, for all of these things, for, for the way that sin can so easily deceive us? What was the solution for Adam and Eve when, when they were in the garden? Well, they probably should have paid a little better attention to God's word, meditated on it, thought on it, memorized it, repeated it with each other. It was only one command. We don't know how long it took them to disobey, but they did. Even, even, even when she's quoting, so-called quoting God, it's not quite right. They didn't quite have God's word, as you say, hidden away in, in their heart. And second, they need to believe God's word. Even whatever subtle lust might come and sneak up to you and whisper, it'll tell you whatever you want to hear. There may be a, one bit of truth in it, but they, it'll tell you whatever you want to hear that you might sin. You have to believe God's word. God doesn't lie. God's word is the purest thing that there is. It is to be trusted above all other things. It is to be trusted more than man. It is to be more value than gold, much fine gold. What can you find more valuable than God's word in this life when your flesh so wants to, to believe the lies of sin? What, what, do you, what do you do to make sure that that's not you? We, we want our sin to be exposed. If we're in Christ, we want to hate our sin and we want it to be exposed. We ought to try to go, you know, get in the Bible and get ourselves cut and bloody because we, we got a lot of sin. We got a lot of growing to do. So believe God's word. Three, obey God's word. As it says in James, you know, 122, we ought to be doers of the word, not being deceivers by just hearing the word. Okay? It's not enough to hear to go to church, to, I know what this means, you have to actually do it. Right? That can be the hardest part of you know, being in the Bible is actually applying it to real life because that is going to be the difference. That is, that is where your, your understanding of God's word grows legs and walks out into the world. So when we think about being watchful, standing firm in the faith, acting like men being strong, we have to be watchful for sin. You think if you knew someone was coming over to deceive you and tell you lies, do you think you would you'd probably prepare, wouldn't you? Well, that's what sin is doing. It's preparing to deceive you. And are you aware of your own tendency to want to believe it? So what, what are you going to do? Someone's going to come over and they're going to tell you a bunch of lies. You're going to say, well, get out, go away. Or is well, there, there's, there's this, this truth that fights that. No, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And to believe those, not giving in to the self-deception. And there's might be a helpful analogy, but if you got dirt on your face, there's two ways you can know that you got dirt on your face. You can go look in a mirror or have somebody point it out. You can go get in the mirror of God's word and have it show you your sin. Or you can say, hey, do I, do I have anything on me? So it's a great passage again, Hebrews 3, 13. Exhort one another as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need each other. I know Nate's going to get into this more tomorrow, but you need people in your life to help you see your sin. You can't see your own sin. And there's some people that might be better at seeing sin than others, some particular sins than others, others less than others. But you need people around you to call out your sin, to expose it to you that you can see it. We, we need each other. Right? If... if 
it's, it's just that's how God sets us up. And notice it's not that we would be, oh, the, the prior verse in Hebrews, that we wouldn't uh, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that it can be deceived, we can be deceived. And another just general idea, just kind of pulling from Graham's message, we really need to stir up our affection for, for God, for our love for him, and uh, think of the, all the things that he has done for you. If you stir up your love for Christ, you will hate sin. They, they're mutually exclusive. You can't love sin and love Christ. If you do, you're, you're deceived. They are mutually exclusive. You, if, you, if, you, if I love my wife, I'm going to you know, reject every other possibility of a woman. If I say, I love my wife and I have lots of lady friends, there would be some good amount of concern around me. I'd say hopefully so, right? And so when we look at all of the ways that you know, we're deceived, we have to remember that Christ ultimately is the solution for every problem of our sin. When sin makes us think that we are better than we are, we need to look at Christ's work on the cross and say, no, 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 you are not as good as you think you are. You can't get there on your own. You need a Savior. When we remember that fact, it keeps us humble, remembering that we need, we need a Savior. We, we need to be rescued. We don't ever just graduate from the, the house of spirituality, and now we're just kind of owned. We're, we're, we're needy people. And the second we think we're not needy people is the time when we're the most needy. And next, when sin deceptively relabels our vices as virtue, we must remember Christ's love for us and throw away the foolish pursuits of this world. When we want to become more conformed to the image of Christ, we're not going to want to play silly games to, to justify our sin. We're not going to get you know, creative and, well, how did other people kind of justify this sin? If we love Christ, we're going to let every sin and encumbrance behind us as we run towards him. And next is sin is deceitful, and I like to blame something else or someone for our problem. It is Christ who stood up for us and says, I'm going to take responsibility for their sin. It's, it's really easy to, to blame shift, but we have to own up for our sin and not try to blame it on something or someone else. And look, look at Christ. It, was he responsible for your sin? No, you're responsible for it. He stepped in for you. And there's times we ought to, you know, if it's with our wife or whatever it is, maybe we just need to keep our mouth quiet and not tell them just, you know, how bad they are and, you know, <laughs> which is the tendency to do. And next, sin is deceitful as how bad it is. We can see the horror of sin at the cross. We need to ever be reminded the cost that Jesus paid, his own blood, purchasing you, your own soul. It wasn't a little thing that he gave his life. That great weight ought to press on us every day and it ought to bring us joy that God would die for someone sinful like you and me. It ought to be a very joyous thought. And next, sin deceives us of the consequences and Christ takes all of the consequences of sin on himself, becoming a curse on the cross. It, it all fell on him. And then we can't be deceived by our righteousness, realizing that Christ is our righteousness. There is no other righteousness but Him. So again, in conclusion, it's being a man of, of grace and granite, you have to be watchful for sin, not to creep in, to deceive you, 
but to stand firm in the faith, to believe what God's word actually says and be strong. Not to be a coward when sin rears its ugly head and you want to make friends or to be lazy or think about it some other time. We're men. We don't, we don't get to be wimps. We have to fight sin. We've got to stand up. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. If you actually hate sin, you're going to have to fight. You're going to work. Some sin is going to be harder than others. We, we, there's no easy street. You're a man. Deal with it. Figure it out. If you have sin, get 50 friends if you want. And I, I need help with sin. Whatever it may be. And be reminded, of course, always that if you're caught in a sin, there's always grace to come to Christ and that he never casts anyone aside. Amen. Pray. Father God, we're thankful for Christ and how much he has done. And we pray for each man that they can not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but to joyfully expose themselves into your word, which you know lays us all naked, Lord, that you can see. Lord, you can see us. You, you know where we're weak. You know where we're sinful. And Lord, we cannot hide from you, so may we go to you knowing that you will never cast us off and you'll always love us. Amen.